Find the Pattern Podcast. Make left traffic, clear for the option. Minneapolis departure, Archer 641, Charlie, Charlie, 2000, climbing 3000. Line up and wait, 7 range, for my Alpha. Mark Tower, 172, Romeo Hotel, hold short on the 133, ready to take off. I'm John. I'm Chris. I'm Brad. And I'm Mark. And we are the In the Pattern Podcast. Welcome to episode 76 of the In the Pattern Podcast. This is Chris, and joining me this evening, we got John and Brad as usual. Unfortunately, Mark couldn't make it, but uh, we do have a special guest. Before, before I introduce him, I'd just like to say, what's up, Brad and John? How are you guys doing? Hello, hello. How's it going? Everybody staying safe? So far, so good. Uh, locked down and not flying near as much as I'd like. Well, that is one of the drawbacks. Plus, you just got a pile of snow. Oh, it's mostly melted. It was 60 wow. degrees before uh, the day before Easter and then... Five inches or seven inches of snow on Easter Sunday, and now it's melting off again. It'll be 60 by the weekend. Mother Nature's not sure what's going on there. No, not one bit. I think she's trying to show us what summer's going to be about here real soon. Uh, We've we've seen mid-80s and then back down to the 60s, and today it was in the low 80s. Pretty nice. Pretty nice. What's going on up there with you, John? Not much. Seeing spring, lots of pollen. Don't know if we're sneezing from allergies or anything else. So, you know. <laughs> we'll cross our fingers for allergies. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's been pretty bad. It's been a lot of pollen and such. So it's it's definitely spring here. No snow for us, but glad to be outside. I'm I'm very glad that we're able to get out and enjoy some some good Man. weather and get the kid outside. Speaking of that, it seems like I I know I don't know how it is around you guys, but it might be a little less uh, with, with with you, Brad. But I mean, the streets are just filled with people always, you know, jogging or biking or uh, we've been doing it, too. Like uh, we'll go for a bike ride like before or after dinner and th- there'll be we'll pass, you know, 100, 200 people. Never seen that many. So I don't know. Maybe we're getting a little bit fitter as a as a as a country uh, by doing by having to go through this. But at the same time. I don't know, eating a lot more because we're <laughs> always eating at home. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's healthier too, right? You're not, not doing all that going out. Depends on what business. you're cooking. Yeah, <laughs> totally, right? If you're having pasta for dinner every night, maybe that's not the right answer. Uh, anyways, special guest. Yes, let's introduce him. Um, so uh, our special guest this evening Um is a author of several books that, uh, like, uh, for example, You Can Fly, The Savvy Flight Instructor, Job Hunting for Pilots. Now, here's the one that might give it away. Flying Carpet, for the, or Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, in the Turbine Pilot's Flight uh, Manual. You might also recognize his name as a regular contributor uh, to AOPA Flight Training Magazine. Uh, and uh, you've probably visited his blog, Greg Brown's flying carpet blog. Greg, how are you doing this evening? Doing great. Thank you. Good to be here. Excellent. Glad to have you. You know, um, I've, I've been to several fly-ins that uh, you've been and, and, and we've met, but I'm sure you wouldn't remember me because you've, you've met a lot of people. Uh, we've, we've been to a couple of uh, 
I think breakfast gatherings at uh, up in Sedona even a couple of times. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite places. I actually um, just landed there today, so I sent some, <laughs> some vibes there for you. I didn't go in and eat for obvious oh, reasons, right. but at least landed there. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, Greg, is uh, I'd consider you to be an expert in mountain flying due to the fact that uh, you live in northern Arizona and you fly out of Flagstaff and around that high alt all around the high altitude airports up there in northern Arizona. Would you say? That's true. I I rarely get below seven thousand feet flying anywhere except coming <laughs> to the valley there. Uh, so yes, I've flown all over northern Arizona and New Mexico into Colorado, Utah, and so on. And most of it is at, at uh, pretty high altitudes. And I, I do know more maybe than I ever wanted to about density altitude and <laughs> some things about mountain flying for sure. Yes. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, everything going okay up there in Flagstaff? It is. It's beautiful up here. And we've had beautiful weather the last couple of days around 55 or so and sunshine and we have real high allergies too. Uh, so you guys aren't alone on that. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, uh, mountains still are, are covered with snow, I think. Right. Yep. We got a beautiful snow cap on the San Francisco peaks. And actually one of the funny things about living here is really the only populated area in, uh, the mountains of Arizona you know, of any size Flagstaff. But, uh, you know, every time you talk to someone elsewhere in the country, they're astonished that we have snow on the ground and, yeah, you know, they're, they're not, not, they don't put, uh, you know, Phoenix and, and Flagstaff like in the same uh, state and understand that there's about a 7,000 foot elevation change to get there. Exactly. And, and then, and then the peaks of those uh, San Francisco peaks go up to about what, 13? 12, six. Yeah. And so that they're, uh, it's the tallest mountain in the state, of course. And those of us who fly Arizona know that if you know where the San Francisco peaks are and you know where Mount Lemmon is down by Tucson, you, you can pretty much fly around the state on a nice day just based on those two mountains because they're so tall. Yeah. And on good visibility, you can see them for long ways out. Um, so I'm going to, if, if you don't mind, uh, get started with the, the, the standard question and get it out of the way. What, what got you into aviation? Well, my dad was a pilot, and he had some really great adventures uh, even before I was born. I think he got his license in like 1949. Wow. Uh, and then he had an air coupe. Uh, he actually had an Aranka Chief. Then he had an air coupe. Then he had a Blanca Cruiser with a crank-up landing gear. This is before me. And then he had three Bonanzas in a row. <laughs> I remember the last one barely. And then he bought a used 310C, a 1959 Cessna 310. And when I was nine, he and his buddy took the back seat out of that airplane, put a 140-gallon gas tank in it, and they flew from Chicago, where I grew up, up to Gander, Newfoundland, and from there across the middle of the Atlantic to the Azores, 10 hours over water Oof. in that 310. And uh, then from there, they went to Europe, and they flew around Europe. And on the way back, this is a long story for a short question, but on the way back, they were halfway between Lisbon, Portugal, and the Azores. So 
That's about 500 miles. They were about 250 miles from land when they experienced some engine roughness. And uh, Eddie Hayes was the name of the other fellow. My dad was Harold Brown. The, the two of them were, you know, pulling the throttle on one engine, pulling the throttle on the other engine because they didn't know which one was vibrating. And obviously turning off the wrong engine was going to be a serious problem. <laughs> so ultimately they shut down the left engine, which proved to be the correct decision. And they relayed their position via an airliner and their situation. They flew to the Azores and waited for a new cylinder one oh cylinder, gosh. one cylinder in the left engine had cracked all the way around to within a half inch of blowing off. Oof. Yikes. That'll wreck your whole day. So they got back, and I am looking at the cylinder, which my dad had made into a lamp in 1962. <laughs> nice. What a memento. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, uh, you know, we kind of grew up with flying and took vacations in the plane and reportedly one of us kids said at the dinner table, dad, do some families not have airplanes? Um, so we grew up with it, but it's just, you know, so often we don't want to follow in our parents' footsteps. My brother, Alan got his license in high school, but my dad had made an offer to us that, uh, if anyone, any of us, four kids, two girls and two boys, if anybody wanted to get their private, he would pay for that. Nothing beyond the private, but he would do that. So when I went off to University of Wisconsin, I took him up on it. So that was, I was 19 at the time. And awesome. I've been flying ever since and uh, had plenty of fun with it. Wow. That is quite the deal. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you got your, so did you have your private, private done basically your freshman year of, of college in? Um, I started my freshman year and finished halfway through my sophomore year. I remember it was uh, the day before Thanksgiving that I got my rating in 1972. Wow. So um, quite a while ago. But as you know, you don't have any money at that point, right? <laughs> Certainly. I, I think I really surprised some people. In those days, you know, if you wanted to ride home, and not you know, fewer people had cars then, right? Students still don't, a lot of them, but... So there was a bulletin board at the union called the ride board where everybody would say, hey, is anybody going to Springfield, Illinois? I want to ride, you know, and I surprised quite a few students by calling them up and asking them if they wanted to fly home and share the expenses. <laughs> there you go. That's a good way to build some time. Yeah, it was, it kept me flying. That's for sure. I couldn't afford it otherwise. That became, I'm sure you became very popular that route. Well, there were people who really got into it and wanted to go with every time. So that that was nice. And then actually, while we're talking about that topic, later I transferred to University of Illinois because they had a major that Wisconsin didn't have. And I met my, my wife, Jean, there. And when we were dating, she transferred to Indianapolis to Butler. And I found another guy whose girlfriend was uh, also at Butler. So whenever the weather allowed, we would fly over there on weekends from Champaign to Indianapolis, which is not that far, but it was great adventure. And uh, I can't even remember the name of the other fellow, but they helped pay for that flying. So I always appreciated it. Very cool. So uh, did, did you get a degree in aeronautics or something or, or how'd that go? No, I... Uh, I got degrees in uh, 
architecture and industrial design, which is a architecture related thing for products. And mm -hmm. uh, so I did all my flying on the side. I got my CFI and then I was instructing. I, I think the first year I got my CFI, I flew about 800 hours and that was <laughs> after work. Oh my gosh. So my wife hardly knew me during that period, which was probably the happiest time of her life, but wow. <laughs> who knows? But uh, at that time, I, when I graduated, I would have loved to become an airline pilot. But in those days, as you all may know, you had to have 2020 vision uncorrected yeah. and you had to be military trained. So mm. that was not an option at that time for me because I wore glasses. And yeah. so what ended up happening was that I went on, got all my ratings and did a lot of instructing. I flew corporate and I was in my 30s already before that changed. And I did fly for a regional for a while, but I flew on my own business quite a bit. I had a consulting company um, and then flew for a regional for a few years, which went bankrupt. And I ended up back in general aviation through a strange twist. And this, this was an interesting thing. Um, so when they changed the rules and you could become an airline pilot without being ex-military and wearing glasses, I was like, okay, here's my chance. So I shut down the business I had at the time and I went full-time instructing while I was looking for a job. And I, I went out looking for a book. I mean, I'd been flying quite a long time at that point, right? Uh, looking for a book that would... Uh, teach me about turbine aircraft because I've been flying piston singles and twins that whole time, including corporate. So I knew mm -hmm. nothing about turbine aircraft. I went to the library. I went to the bookstore. No such book existed. <laughs> there were engineering books filled with formulas that I couldn't understand, but there was no book that just covered the principles. So as I trained, and after I trained, when I got hired by the regional, and with the help of another fellow who's now a Delta pilot, but at that time was in the same boat as me, we wrote that book, The Turbine Pilot's Flight Manual, huh. that addressed people you know, like me. And I, I can tell you proudly, do you guys happen to know the book, How Things Work by David McCauley? Would you believe it if I told you I have it in my hand? Or actually, it's in my backpack in front of me right now. Right. I mean, that is a classic book that tells how toilets work, how refrigerators work. And it's it's easy to understand, right? I mean, it's a fascinating. So the, the original Turbine Pilot's Flight Manual uh, was actually modeled to a degree after that book. Hmm. We were told there's always naysayers, you know, the people at the universities. Nobody's going to buy this book because it doesn't have the formulas. Well, I, I didn't know the formulas, and I still don't. <laughs> Right. That book turned out to be there was a big need. And I'll tell you one other part of that story. At that time, when I learned to fly, there was only one writer of textbooks. That was Bill Kirshner and of aviation books. So for your private, your commercial and so on, everybody bought his books. And he actually made millions on those books in that day of popular aviation, which is amazing for any author. He owned the market, huh? He owned the market, and in those days, they were paid. He, he got good compensation, and he sold a lot of them because uh, you can tell I'm good at rambling. 
when I got my license, they were making about fifteen to eighteen thousand airplanes a year, light airplanes. Yeah, a different time. Now they're making a few hundred, right? Mm-hmm. So the number of people flying was huge. But in any case, I was flying for this regional, and I was about three quarters of the way done with that book, and the regional went out of business. And I was like, I got to get a job and or finish this book. I wonder if there's any market for this book. So not knowing that you don't call the editor-in-chief of a press, I called the editor-in-chief of Iowa State University Press, who published all of Kirshner's books. And I said, hey, I'm working on this book, uh, Principles of Turbine Aircraft. And before I could say anything else, I never talked to the guy before. He said, how soon can I see it? This was right one of life's great lessons. Sounds like he's been waiting for your call. <laughs> he had. It turned out that they had been trying to get Kirshner to write that book because there was no text. And Kirshner had flown in the air in the Navy, as I remember, and he had some jet experience, but he didn't feel competent writing the book. So this guy made me FedEx him. This is before you could email this kind of stuff. He made me FedEx him the draft. I, I had to, you know, I virtually had him sign something saying that, you know, I said, we haven't fact-checked this. It's not done yet. That's okay. I want to see it. So I sold the book on one phone call, and then that changed my whole life because that book sold well. So then I did the Savvy Flight Instructor and Flight Training Magazine. So the next thing you know, I'm writing this adventure column, flying adventure column for flight training. And what is, right, those strange twists of life, and I couldn't have had more fun with this career. If I had been an airline pilot, I'm sure I would have loved it. <laughs> this has just been a total blast, and I'm still enjoying it. As one reason why I have stayed active with flight training audiences, I think that folks who are learning to fly at that stage, the first solo and taking their families for the first flights and flying across the country in a 172, those things are incredible life adventures and the people who are doing them are just so excited. Uh, I get high off of it. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. I, uh, I love hearing about uh, some, a freshly minted pilot and their first flight always taking usually a family member or somebody. And it's just a joy for everybody. And, and as someone who bought your book, uh, not long after I got my private certificate, I can say that I'm I'm one of those people, and it and it really does kind of open your eyes to a lot of the the joys of the experience and a lot of the of of what you can get out of flying. You know, there's the there's there's always the stories of you know things that go that that go wrong, and and but there's also the you know hey I used an airplane and I got to accomplish this major thing in my life. I got to to visit family or I got to, you know, get a friend to a conference that they wanted to go to or or those kinds of uh, yeah. those kinds of things. It can be an incredible tool, not just an expensive hobby. Yeah, I think I think for me one of the special parts I couldn't agree more with with you guys that the uh, the fact that the flying it is an end in itself. It can be, right? But it it's a vehicle, no pun intended, to take you to all kinds of other things, you know, to pursue other hobbies you're interested in, to fly to a sports event or to an antique show or hiking or islands or whatever. 
Uh, and then to complete these missions that help other people, like you mentioned, taking a friend somewhere, is there anything more rewarding than flying a friend someplace they need to go? I don't think so. So that's that's a good that's a good segue that I'll I'll just uh, I'm gonna jump since you, since you mentioned that I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump into my last flight real quick because that's exactly what happened. Huh? But a, a buddy of mine down here um, was flying back from uh, Durango, Colorado, uh, from a skiing trip with him and his family, him and his him and his daughters, I guess, um, uh, daughter and son, and he's got a Bonanza A36 down here at Deer Valley. And so he was flying back here and, um, and then just the weather just kind of turned to crap. This was, uh, this was like on March 1st or 2nd, I don't know, something like that. The, the first, uh, either end of uh, last day of February or first day of March, something like that. The weather just like turned to crap and he was looking at it on, on four flight and, uh, and it was just, an, he was like, I'm, I'm not making it to, to Deer Valley. So he's like, I, I just landed at Flagstaff and he called his wife and she drove up and picked everybody up. <laughs> so he, te- he texted me, he's like, Hey, Chris, would you happen to have a chance to, you know, maybe fly me up to Flagstaff to pick up my airplane? And I was like, sure. I was on sabbatical. Um, I, um, I, uh, I took a sabbatical from work uh, for the whole month of March. And then of course this crap happened, but anyways, so I didn't, I didn't have anything planned. I was like, perfect. You want to go tomorrow? He's like, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, okay. All right. So, uh, so he met me down at Glendale and, and I grabbed the airplane that I rent and, and we headed up to uh, Flagstaff and, uh, and it was, we had some winds. We had some like 20 knot winds or so. And, and uh, it, it was, it was, wasn't so bad going up because we had quite a, quite a good tailwind little bit of crosswind on the landing, but uh, no big deal. I literally uh, just uh, dropped him off there at his airplane. He he went inside and paid for his fuel and, and pre-flighted. And uh, I hear him on the radio about the time I'm over uh, Sedona. And he and he's now on with uh, uh, with Phoenix Approach. Um, and uh, he's, he's gaining on me like you wouldn't believe. Of course, he's in an A36 and I'm in a 172. So... He ends up uh, he ends up making it to Deer Valley, you know, just just before, you know, right about the same time, if not maybe a minute or two before I made it back to Glendale. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, you know, that's uh, I love to do that sort of thing, good times. But um, let me let me ask you. So, so did you get your commercial while you were at, in college, or you got that afterwards? I got that afterward. I. I couldn't afford to do the additional ratings. I think I mentioned my dad. Oh, yeah, yeah. He covered my private. But uh, once I got married to Jean, and she had even better employment than I did, that's when I started getting ratings. So I got my commercial and my CFI, I think. My CFI, I know I got in 79. I guess I got my instrument in 77, and then my commercial and CFI, I did around 78 and 79. So I was just kind of chipping away at these ratings at the time. It was sort of like something new to try. I didn't necessarily have a plan as to where these things would go. Um, I did have a really interesting experience when I got my multi. Is that a story you'd like to hear? Yeah. Hit us up. So... I was flying out of Lafayette at that time, Lafayette, Indiana, because I taught at Purdue. And I uh, got a few ratings there, actually, 
through classes at Purdue, but they didn't have a multi-engine airplane trainer there, and I wanted to get my multi. And actually, uh, I got my single and my multi-engine commercial on the same day. This is something mm -hmm. that's not that uncommon now, but then it was very uncommon that I, I uh, took my commercial check ride, and then I did an add-on in a 172 with, you know, the chandelles, steep spirals, the few things you have to do in a single. So I actually mm -hmm. got both ratings in the same day. Anyway, so the, the nearest place that I could train was at Terre Haute, Indiana, which is where Indiana State University is. And there was a private strip there called Sky King Airport. And I went down there to start my lessons. And it turned out the guy who owned the airport was named Herman Brown, no relation to me. He went by Brownie. He was really old. Of course, I was younger then, but he was really old. And it turned out some listeners will be familiar with the television show Sky King, which was yeah. in the 50s. Well, according to Brownie, Kirby Grant, who was the star of Sky King, was either not really a pilot or not current or something. And so when he had to make private, or excuse me, make public appearances, Brownie had been Kirby Grant's pilot. They would fly the Songbird, the 310, not the, I don't think he ever flew the uh, Bamboo Bomber, the first one, but he, he would, uh, Brownie would fly Kirby Grant in the Songbird to where he was making this appearance. And then after they landed, they would swap seats so that Kirby would be in the pilot seat when they taxied in to meet the crowds. Very because cheap. this was such a popular TV program. Anyway, so the trainer was a, a Piper Apache. Mm. Any of you have experience with a Piper Apache? Not flying it. No, I haven't, haven't done any multi yet. Well, it's a really uh, easy to fly airplane. The problem with it is I think it had two 160 horse engines in it and it was a blunt and boxy airplane. Um, so if one engine quit, you were starting down right away on one engine, much less. In other words, it was sort of a twin in name only because you were only going to yeah. go down a little slower if one engine quit versus if you were a glider. I mean, it was incredible. You had the best rate of least going down. It's one of those, it's one of those twins that will take you all the way to the crash site. Exactly. And <laughs> one of the other challenge, among the other challenges is when they first came out, it had hydraulic landing gear. There was a hydraulic pump was on one engine. They had one vacuum pump on one engine. And they had one generator on one engine. So you had to memorize, you know, which of these things was on which engine. If you lost one engine, you'd have to manually pump the landing gear down as you were trying to make the airport. If you lost the other, I can't remember which was on which anymore after all these years. But if you lost, you might be partial panel because the vacuum pump was lost, or you've lost your electrical system. So you're right. I mean, imagine right. And another <laughs> problem it had is that the door would blow open pretty frequently, and they had had a number of accidents where the door blew open, scared the pilot, and uh, there was some shuddering involved when the door opened. So I'm taking lessons in this thing and smashing my face against the panel, pumping the landing gear down, a partial panel or whatever. And then the guy opens the door and there's buffeting of the tail. I mean, it was incredible. So all of a sudden that airplane ceased to be available. They had a problem with it mechanically. 
So I had to go to a different airport and I, I moved from this Piper Apache to a Cessna 310. Now the 310's approach speed was higher than the Apache's cruise speed. <laughs> I've always loved the 310. I've always thought they were very, very sleek. They have that pointy nose and everything. And, and I like them with the wingtip tanks. I love that plane. I'm with you. I think it, it might be the most beautiful GA plane ever. This will get your mail if, now that I've said yeah. that. So I, uh, the, the guy who had this was at another airport in Indiana and he had just bought the airplane and it was his baby. So, you know, flying with this guy, it was like riding on eggs because he was anything I did that he thought might be a little rough on the plane was a problem. Anyway, make a long story short, I did my training in that and flew it with my instructor, who owned the guy who owned the plane, to Sky King Airport. We landed Sky King Airport and the uh, Brownie starts telling Sky King stories like he always did. And in the meantime, I think there was a front approaching, but the wind started picking up, picking up. I'm looking nervously out the window because it was a, a good crosswind. And this was a, I think a 50 foot wide runway, maybe 3,500 feet long at that time. So it's a fairly small runway for an airplane like that. So finally, Brownie's ready for the check ride, and he says, do you mind if my grandson comes along? And I, I was like, oh, no. Uh, well, of course it's okay, but the grandson turned out to be a five-year-old. So he gets in the back seat, and he's screaming and bouncing up and down and so on. We start the takeoff roll. Brownie's in the right seat. I'm flying. The little kid's in the back. And Brownie says, stop the airplane right there, and he points to a point. And I stopped the plane and I thought, man, I just flunked the check ride. We all know how expensive twins are to rent, right? I'm like, this is, this is just terrible. Brownie opens up the door, gets out. And it turned out the reason he had to stop was the kid decided not to go. So we sit there in the middle of the runway while the kid gets out of the plane, runs over to the fence, climbs the fence and goes to his mom's house. And then Brownie comes back and says, okay, now we'll continue the check ride. This is the first time I knew we were continuing. Wow. <laughs> we're in the middle of the runway, right? And the runway's not long enough to take off from there. So I said, well, let's go down to the end and turn around. And where there was a, you know, a little bit of an enlargement to turn around. And Brownie says, uh, uh, here, I'll take it. So, right, like 50 foot wide runway. <laughs> He goes full throttle on one engine and, and full brake on the opposite side. So the tires are squealing. And then we go down to the end by the office and he does the same thing. The instructor, the owner of this airplane comes running out. <laughs> and, and here we are with the tires squealing and one engine at full power and so on. Uh, so we, we took off and... I passed the check ride, then I went up into 172, and I passed that part. I got my two licenses, and it's over. I, mean, I can't wait to fly this thing home. And my instructor comes out to the plane and says, you did such a great job. Why don't you relax, and I'll fly home. <laughs> so I was very disturbed about it. But then I thought, well, at least he'll save me a few bucks. But he charged me anyway. <laughs> Come on. That, by the way, will be in the next Flying Carpet book because that's one of the highlights of my flying career. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, it made for a good story. I mean, but uh, not exactly the outcome. Well, the outcome 
was what you was hoping for, but uh, maybe not the exact experience you were thinking. <laughs> it, it was it was pretty exciting. It definitely made for a good story. What kind of um, when when you when you were doing uh, using your commercial ticket, um, what kind of planes were you flying for in the corporate world? Well, I flew a uh, Navajo, and actually, this is kind of an inspiring story. I I think a lot of us when we are involved at the at the ground level of general aviation. We don't see where it's going to take us. But I had an instrument student who was a very nice fellow and a good pilot, and he owned a company. And I was actually teaching at Purdue at this time, and this fellow was a faculty member in another department, but he also owned a scientific instrument company. So one day he totally surprised me by saying, hey, Greg, how would you like to uh, fly from my company? And I said, well, well, that would be great. What kind of airplane are you thinking you'll buy? And he said, well, we'd like to buy a twin engine airplane and uh, you would help us pick out the plane. And then you could also help us with our design department, which is what I taught, you know, in addition to being the chief pilot and flying our team around. So this was a, a you know, a delightful surprise. I think I had maybe 20, 25 hours of multi-time at that point. So I, I told him that, Pete, you know, I, I don't really have much multi-time. And he said, you know, I've flown with you enough that I have tremendous respect for your judgment. And I have no doubt that with the proper training, you can do a nice job. And I know you'll get along with all our people. And he said, I've looked into the insurance and it'll be hefty for the first year, but I think it's a good investment. So I would be glad to pay it if you'll go to work for us. So that was really a wonderful experience to recognize flight instructing and the people you meet at the airport. Sometimes you're in this case, your flights, my flight student, there are opportunities there. Don't ever discount anybody at the airport in terms of what you might get to do. Thanks to them. It's, it's just incredible. And this has come back to me time and time again, but in any case, we went out, we flew a 421. We flew a, uh, we ended up buying a Piper Navajo, and I flew that often to the East Coast. So that's a twin-engine, cabin-class, non-pressurized airplane. Yeah, uh, so that's the corporate flying I did, was in that airplane. And I had some pretty good adventures in that. Nice. That's a pretty good size little, uh, um, uh, for a smaller twin. Uh, it's still, what, set uh, six or eight in the back? It, it set eight people, and it was about a 180-knot airplane. It was The fact that it was non-pressurized uh, made it, you know, it was a, a bit of work because we would fly from Indiana to uh, uh, Washington National, Atlantic City. You know, we did a lot of East Coast trips, and as I remember, it was still about five hours in there. Mm. I did have one heck of an adventure in that plane, and I wrote about it in a column not too long ago. So I don't know if you want to hear it. It'll be in the next book, too. But um, do any of you remember reading this in the last year or so? Do you want to hear that story? Sure. Uh, and I'm sure that I've read it, but go ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's uh, it, in, uh, in the AOP, AOPA flight training book or uh, magazine. Yeah, I was in there maybe a year and a half, two years ago. So Jog our memory. Any story that I tell, it's a big joke among my friends, right? Because I'll start to tell them a story and they'll say, yeah, I know that. You, are, you wrote about that. So <laughs> I have no original stories. But this was a really interesting experience. Um, I flew the Navajo with a bunch of people out to, I think, Atlantic City. We used to go there pretty often. 
And uh, then my job was, to, you know, I was going to bring the airplane back and then go back and get them in a week. So I took off from Atlantic City in this airplane, good weather. And I think I had a thermos of coffee with me or something. And I drank that coffee without thinking about that. I forgot to bring a relief bottle. Everybody knows what a relief bottle is, right? One of those plastic yeah. bottles that, yep. And uh, normally I, I would have one. Well, this airplane actually had a uh, crude toilet way in the back. It was a seat that had a curtain around it. And the toilet, thank God nobody ever used the toilet for anything uh, nasty because it just had a plastic bag in it. And as chief pilot, that was my job would have been to change that. But it had a relief tube. And so a relief tube in this airplane, there was a Venturi on the outside of the airplane, and then there was a rubber hose that went through the fuselage to a little funnel. And you could urinate in this funnel, and the Venturi created a vacuum, and it would draw the, uh, the urine out of the plane and vaporize it. Hmm. But this was at the very back of the plane. So I'm flying along thinking, man, I, I'd really like to get home. I hate to land, but... I mean, I don't dare go back there and use that thing. And I, I didn't have anything else uh, to use. And we all know, right, this, on these longer trips, this grows in your mind. The pressure grows, right? Yeah, yes. The, the airplane had a good autopilot in it, a two-axis autopilot. And I, I knew it would be stupid to go back there. So I, I was not going to do that. I was going to land if I had to do it. But time went on and the pressure got greater and greater. And I was in blue skies and no one was talking to me. And I thought, you know, it would only take a moment <laughs> to run back there. And as I reached for my seatbelt, the airplane pitched up so rapidly that I almost it almost went over the top. I, I grabbed the controls, turned off the autopilot and had to pitch down and regain control of the, the plane. It turned out it was wow. a runaway autopilot. Can you imagine if you were back there at that point? My life passed before my eyes, right? I mean, if, if, a minute, I, I am not exaggerating that I was just getting ready to get out of the seat. And it was one of the great lessons of aviation, right? So I don't remember anymore how I dealt with the, pro the problem at hand. There might have been a pop can there or something. But however <laughs> I did it, I sure didn't get out of that seat. And the problem turned out to be a very interesting problem because later in the flight, I, I tried the autopilot. It was working fine. And so I returned home. The avionics guys couldn't find it. But it did run away a couple other times. But those times, I knew what it was. So I caught it earlier. Um, it turned out that this autopilot had a, of course, it had a pitch servo, which, you know, controls the pitch of the airplane. And then it had a trim servo, which fancier autopilots have, a separate servo. And that servo trims just like we do manually to take the pressure off while the pitch servo is flying. It turned out that there was an adjustment problem and that the pitch servo was always trying to pitch up. This was discovered by the avionics guys. But the trim servo would hold it down. And they were, fight, they were fighting each other. They were fighting each other until one of them would get hot 
and it had a thermal uh, circuit breaker or something on it. It, was re it. it reset itself, though. It had some kind of a thermal protection. So one of those would quit. Wow. And that was what was causing it. So it was easy to fix once they knew that. But that, that was a memory, you know, a lot of lessons in that adventure. And that was the one really scary thing that ever happened to me in that airplane. Wow. Yeah, you know, we, uh, I, I flew, I flew to Oshkosh from uh, Phoenix Deer Valley with my buddy Franz one time in his Mooney when, uh, um, I don't know, it was probably like five years ago. And, uh, we didn't even make it, we didn't even make it to New Mexico before he had to go to the bathroom. Um, and, uh, so he's got the little John in his hand. He's like, I, I gotta go, I gotta go your plane. So he gets up on his knees in his seat he's in the left seat. I'm in the right seat because he can't, he can't go number one. He can't pee sitting down like that. So he, he gets unbuckles and, and turns around in his seat. So where he can kneel. And, uh, and then I've got the plane. Um, I, I, I was always thinking the whole time. I just wanted to go real fast with the uh, ailerons. <laughs> but then again, I didn't want to pee all over me too. Right. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and then uh, our first stop for fuel was in Kansas, and he had to go again before he even made it to Kansas. So uh, yeah, he, he had a yeah. Franz got a little bit of a mouse splatter, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yeah, those those can be tricky situations <laughs> without the right tools. <laughs> that's for sure. Oh wow. Um, yeah, that, that's that's uh, so the, the their business just used it for uh, getting getting their people from you know meeting to meeting and so forth. Yeah, they did a lot of trade shows, and I I would fly mm. them to trade shows, and sometimes at, at some points I actually helped them out in the booth, but usually they let me go home. But they had customer meetings. They were selling scientific instruments, so we went to a lot of university towns. Oh, okay, which was nice. Um, I actually had another interesting experience with them. Be before we bought the airplane, we um, there was a by that time there was a Piper Seminole we could rent, which of course is a, basically a twin engine aero. You know, it's just yeah. a little four seater, and that's uh, like what all the what all the schools like to use for trainers for twins. I think exactly, they're wonderful to fly. Uh, it's just a wonderful handling, fun little airplane. And this same fellow, while we were looking for the uh, before we bought the Navajo, we would rent that. He and I flew out to Syracuse, New York, because he had a sales call to make. And there was a big cold front right behind us. So we took off, and we knew this cold front was going to go through Syracuse after we got there that night. And he had a presentation the next morning, and then that afternoon we were going to go home. So we flew out there, and sure enough, the uh, cold front came through bitterly cold, and there was a phenomenal ice storm. Rain started, it changed to snow, but primarily the frigid, below zero temperatures. And I should have known it was going to be a problem when we got up in the morning and went out to the car and I had to chip ice off the car to even open the door handle. <laughs> it was, you know, one of those things where there's like a half inch of ice on every twig. It was beautiful. So he went to his meeting. I went to the airport. Well, no surprise. The airplane was covered with ice, but the runway was completely covered with ice. <laughs> and they said, well, we, you know, we should get this cleared up by this afternoon. But they didn't. And to make a long story short, we were stuck there for four days. 
<coughs> because the runway was so frozen and they had a, uh, a chemical that they spread on there to melt the ice, but the winds were very strong and it was oh. blowing the chemical off because it's a solid, you know, chemical, not, not a fluid. It was yeah. blowing that stuff off the runway. So we were stuck there for days. We rented a car. We went down to Cornell and did sightseeing and so on. Um, Might as well make the best of it. Exactly. Jeez. So, um, and then when did you, when did you start flight instructing? I started doing that a lot in 79. And, um, and you've just been doing that ever since. I did that uh, for years. Then I did the stint with the regionals. And then lately, I mean, in recent years, I've really done more writing instructionally than, than teaching in an airplane. But flight instructing is just a wonderful, rewarding thing to do. And, you know, we have such a shortage of these people. I'm hoping that a lot of listeners, even if you're, you know, at the private pilot stage, will consider doing this because you meet a lot of people. It's a lot of fun. It's something you can do part time. Once you're an instructor, the checkouts and the insurance issues and all that largely melt away. So people loan you airplanes. And <laughs> in my case, of course, I got a job out of this. But uh, a lot of neat things can happen as an instructor. And the rewards of handing someone the key to their dream of flying a plane, all of us know what an amazing accomplishment that is when you get your, you earn your private pilot certificate. So to be the guy or the girl who delivers that dream is a really marvelous thing. It's a lot of fun and it's it's a much easier thing to accomplish. You know, once you've got your private and instrument done, the commercial and the CFI are, are pretty quick and, and pretty affordable compared to the private and instrument. So it's something that uh, it's well worth doing and the rewards are huge. And sure, people do burn out on it sometimes, but uh, it's more common, like people who do it for many years in an academy environment might burn out, but there's so much pleasure in it. That's my end goal. That's what I want to do. Uh, Brad's, uh, Brad's our resident instrument pilot on here. The rest of us just have our privates. Uh -huh. um, and uh, and Brad's, Brad has had his instrument. Uh, you've had your instrument for, I don't know, what, eight, eight, seven, eight, eight years? years? Yeah. Yeah, eight years now. And and he gets to use it quite a bit from you know where he's at. Exactly. It, it's a, it really increases the utility, doesn't it, Brad? I mean, it's amazing how many more trips you're able to complete with the instrument. Yeah, it, it makes it easier for, you know, at least in the summer months around here, it, it makes it a lot easier to reliably dispatch, right? It means that I'm much more likely to get to my destination. There's, there's still plenty of weather even in the summertime that you that you don't fly in um but there's a lot that you can all of a sudden so when you get a you know especially in the spring and fall here we get we'll get a, a seven eight hundred foot overcast and you can pop right out through it and get on top and have a nice uh, vmc flight well i i figured at one point that my success rate on making trips i was flying in northern indiana which was as bad, both of those, these places are in the lee of the lakes a lot of the time, right? And that's where that bad weather comes from, um, where you were flying and me both. Um, I figured that my success rate on trips, my mission completion rate, you might call it that, probably went from maybe 60% to 
the day I got my instrument? Would you think it was that big <laughs> of a percentage, Brad? You know, I would say probably in the in the warmer months, yes. In the winter months, the I don't fly equipment that can that can get out anyway, so the instrument is just a, a, a frustrating thing for about six months out of the year here. Yeah, that's an issue. It's not as good in the winter, but it sure helps in the summer. And I, I think people who aren't instrument rated have a mental picture that you're spending hours and hours flying in the clouds, and, and that does happen. But the vast majority of the time, you're climbing through a cloud deck or you're in and out of broken clouds or it, it, you're, you're really not on instruments that long on the average flight, in my experience. Exactly. Yeah, you, you try to end up kind of in between layers and, and then you can just sit back and relax. I do have a tip. Uh, Chris and I talked about this a little bit, but for those who want to become flight instructors, here's a, a tip for you. As I mentioned, the, the private and the instrument are the biggies. The instrument is the most challenging and most rewarding rating there is. Like I have a 737 type. It was easier than doing my instrument by far. The instrument's a biggie. But once you've got that done, a lot of people don't realize that, first of all, that a lot of the written tests are similar. So if you're headed for your instructor, the instrument written and the instrument instructor written are almost identical. So those folks who are moving rapidly through and think they could do it within two years, which was how long the, you know, the written's last, uh, you could take study for your instrument and take the instrument and the instrument instructor in short order with one study round. And incidentally, the instrument ground instructor is also virtually identical if that's something you want. But then uh, when it comes to commercial time, this really starts to make sense because you can effectively combine your commercial and CFI into one training exercise by, first of all, the commercial written commercial airplane written and the flight instructor airplane written are virtually identical. And so is the advanced ground instructor written if you want to do ground instructing. So you study for the commercial, you take a look at the test questions for the flight instructor airplane written, and there may be a few different ones there to, to learn but you probably won't have to do any additional study. There's this other flight instructor test, right? Fundamentals of instruction. That's made of different stuff. That's my nemesis. Yes, we'll set that aside for a moment. <laughs> so you knock off these two writtens, and then you go to the airport to get your commercial, and you ask your instructor if you can do your commercial training in the right seat. And ideally, you would also see if there's an examiner who would be willing to give you your commercial check ride in the right seat. Why? Because the moment you start flight instructor training, the first thing you have to do is relearn all the private and commercial maneuvers from the right seat. So if you do your commercial in the right seat, you pass your check ride, you go right on, and now you're teaching directly. You've saved yourself maybe a five-hour transition learning all those maneuvers from the right seat. You're all set to go on your flight instructor. So this is a really condensed way to get them both done in short order if that's your goal, to be a flight instructor. And I'd like to make one other point. Not everybody knows that you can be a ground instructor without even being a private pilot. So one thing that someone who wants to instruct ultimately, or even 
just likes teaching, they could get their basic ground instructor, which just covers private pilot material, or they could get their advanced ground instructor or the instrument, whatever, but they can start teaching and earning money. And it actually even has potentially some tax implications when you go on to your flight instructor, then you're adding a skill rather than starting a new one. So you might be able to write off some of your flight instructor flight training. But it's a really great way to develop the teaching skills that will get you your CFI. You can make good money with a ground school with 20, 30 people in it, right? Or even 10 people. Yeah, right. So it's a great avenue to head for your flight instructor is to become a ground instructor at the point where you're excited about teaching this stuff, and then you'll get your flight instructor later. I was actually entertaining the idea of, of, of after I got my uh, AGI, was hitting up some of the uh, community colleges around here and see if they'd be interested in letting me adjunct teach that class. I'm sure they would. And don't rule out flight schools because the CFIs don't want to teach the ground school because they want that's the flight true. hours. Yeah, that's true. But be sure you do it for a percentage or as an independent contractor because you can make a lot of money on those ground schools. If you think about, you know, if they're $100, $200 per student and mm -hmm. you can get 10, 20, 30 students, that could be a good chunk of money you could apply toward your flying as opposed to go. maybe getting an hourly rate. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So do you mainly, uh, are you mainly doing uh, primary training now? I'm not doing much flight instructing at all now since we've owned our own airplane. I haven't done a lot of that for a long time, to be perfectly oh, really? honest. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've been writing on that topic this whole time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I know Chris is a member of my pep talk, uh, my Facebook group. The uh, It's pretty active. It's <laughs> Yeah, Greg Brown's student pilot pep talk group. Uh, which I'm very proud of, by the way. But I've been very active with that. And then as I, you know, I've had the good fortune with that column I wrote for so long to be writing travel adventure type stuff in light airplanes. So that, and there are a lot of lessons that can be taught that way. Mm -hmm. So over time, I transitioned from actually hands-on instructing to that. A lot of this has to do with where I live. I'm in this relatively small college community without a lot of flight training going on. Yeah. When did you, uh, you start writing for the AOPA magazine? Uh, must have been about 97 or 98. I wrote a flight instructor column, and then I approached Tom Haynes, who then, then was editor-in-chief at AOPA, and of course he's still there and is an executive VP, I think, or senior. Uh -huh. uh, the reason that column exists is sort of, people may appreciate this, flight training is really hard, right? I mean, when you're learning to fly, that is hard stuff. And the magazine, of course, is filled with all kinds of useful information about how to master it. And I proposed to Tom that I thought it would be I asked him, do you think it would be neat to have a column in the magazine that was sort of the carrot that showed why you're going through these challenges to become a private pilot? And uh, he wrote back and said, oh, a nice idea or something. And to my astonishment, another uh, maybe a month later, he, he called me up and said, you know, I've been thinking about it. And I think that's a really great idea. So that column started on, in January of 2000. Uh, which coincidentally was the year I was flight instructor of the year. So I think I, that also helped me get that opportunity. 
And then it, uh, the column actually just ended with the January issue. So I did it for 20 years and one month. Mm. So uh, it's been a marvelous experience, to, first of all, because it's been great fun. But boy, oh boy, the lessons you can teach based on experiences, each of us, right? Uh, John, Chris, Brad, it's those lessons we've had in the air that really make us into proficient, safe pilots, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's been a, a great joy. And then the Flying Carpet book uh, arose from that column. And so will the next book of, you know, packaging those adventures together in a cohesive manner and expanding, you know, things you can't get into in a short column. Gotcha. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to that point, I mean, this podcast alone is one of those things that kind of started out as like, oh, we're flight training. Let's talk about that. But then, like, ultimately, it ended up being us just telling flying stories and figuring out, like, what we learned. <laughs> right. And like going through the debrief of like, oh, yeah, well, we could have done this differently or that or, you know, this was cool or this was fun. But we learned this, you know, bit. I'm pretty convinced that it's the best way to transfer judgment and um, nuanced information. I mean, obviously, you couldn't learn your do your whole private study based on hearing stories. <laughs> In terms of transferring judgment and decision making, I think a story is if you can tell a captivating story and, and people will listen. And if you can integrate lessons there, and usually you don't have to integrate them there. They, they happen to you whether you <laughs> want them or not. Right. Uh, but I think it's a really valuable way to convey information. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's always uh, there's always uh, usually something learned in almost every flight and maybe not so much for other people that fly a lot, but uh, I don't get to fly near as much as as, as I used to. Uh, it used to be I at least fly at least once a month. And now it seems like I'm only getting to fly, you know, once a quarter. And uh, and I, it, maybe it's just because you're so you're you're not as proficient as as you you know, used to be, but uh, there's always, you know, something that I'm learning along the lines. You know, one aspect of that that I've learned over the years of, of doing the training, and, and I have given thousands of hours of duels, so I don't want to give the impression that I hadn't done very much of it. But one of the things you find out that's really fascinating is that people's confidence goes away before their competence does. Mm. So if you're not flying very much, then you start to have... Maybe they're not out and out doubts, but you just realize oh, I'm probably getting pretty rusty. And as time goes by, you're less and less inclined because you think it's going to be kind of tough to get back into it. And you're going to be rusty. And of course, you, you will be a little rusty. But mm -hmm. I've had people fly with me, a, a buddy of mine, a neighbor of mine, soloed in 1968 and had never flown a plane again. He got married and that was the end of it. And we went flying a couple of years ago and I gave him the controls and he didn't surprise me, but he astounded himself. <laughs> he could still do it. You know, he made the radio calls and he did a very nice job. And my brother-in-law, who hasn't flown for 20 years, I gave him, We uh, they were here not too long ago and I took him flying. And he was right at home in there after about, took him about five minutes. And then he was back to being in command. So going back is much easier than people think. But whenever there's a break, and, and this is true of me too, like during this period now, I'm only flying very rarely. And it's, 
I don't feel as confident and I make more mistakes. And But I've learned over the years that if I'm thorough and go back, I can very rapidly get back to where I was. Yeah. Just like riding a bike, as they say. I, I really believe that's true when it comes to flying airplanes, that it, it is like riding a bike. You know, if, if it's something that you, you love to do, you know, your brain don't let go of it. You know, it, it, you might not have some of the muscle memory or you might have forgot a little bit of the phraseology. But I think once you get into the situation and you're back in that seat and you're going, you know, it just all starts getting natural back to you. Again. It's true. Hey, can I, I, I don't know uh, how we're doing on time, but I would like to share a bit of advice on this topic if, if we have time. Yeah, please do. So here's one of the lessons I've learned over all these years of flying, applying to myself and others. Flights where we are nervous before we go are frequent for everyone, right? You haven't flown for two weeks, so you're a little bit nervous. The weather's a little marginal, so you're nervous. You're flying into a place you've never been to, so you're nervous. Th this is normal. This is how everyone, I still get it when I'm going to a new place. I uh, flew into Telluride for the second time. I wrote a column about this too, actually. But in the summertime, elevation of the field is 9,200 feet. <laughs> I did, I researched the heck out of it. My, my wife was ready to shoot me because I was just so worried about this thing. But this is just part of flying. A good pilot worries about these things and thinks about them. But... You'll hear people say, I just didn't feel right about going, so I didn't go. Well, they're, they're talking about, they'll often call it gut feeling. You know, I just had a feeling in the pit of my stomach that I shouldn't go. Mm -hmm. That is not the way to make the decisions. I have learned concretely, conclusively, you look at a situation and if you can logically, if you can look through logically, and see that rationally, this is a perfectly safe trip to make. No matter how nervous you are, you take off and go. Because it's all about the rational situation, right? It's all about the facts. So the fact that you're nervous before you go is not a reason to not go, unless you're nervous because the facts suggest danger, right? That's a different story. If you think about it, the most dangerous situation is not when you're nervous. It's when you're not nervous and the facts suggest there's a dangerous, there's a danger to the flight. And I can tell you where this originated. My first right after I got my instrument rating in 1977, and we lived in Indianapolis at the time, and we had arranged we were going to go visit, my wife and I were going to go visit my aunt and my uncle who live in Toronto. And so we get up that morning. We had arranged for the, we were in a flying club. They had a 182. I think it was about a two and a half hour flight, if I remember correctly. And there was, it was about maybe seven, 800 overcast and winds aloft were pretty strong. So those dark clouds were just rushing by. You know that feeling like it's almost going to, hit the top of your head while it goes by, dark clouds racing by. And, and the weather was like that all the way to Toronto. There was no icing. There were no thunderstorms. There were no forecasts of anything dangerous. And it was a consistent seven, 800 feet overcast the whole way. So that's kind of scary, right? This is going to be my first actual instrument flight by myself, and with my 
my wife with the passenger, right? So I was sweating this and sweating this. I said to Jean, you know, I'm, I'm just not sure we should go. This is, really makes me nervous. And she looked at me, and I can see this to this day. This was a long time ago, right? 1977. Jean looked at me and she said, is it safe? And I said, well, you know, uh, judging by all the facts, you know, and I told her the same thing I just told you about no icy, no thunderstorms, blah, blah, blah. She says, well, then if it's safe, let's go. We just spent all this money on the instrument rating, and you're not going <laughs> to check it out now. And it was like the best advice I ever got in terms of flying because this happens, right? You three have all experienced this, right? Mm -hmm. Nervous oh, as yeah. hell, and then oh, you yeah. get going and it's fine. But I have learned there are a lot of people who go with this idea of, I just didn't feel right about it, so I decided not to go. And you're going to miss flights, and you're never going to gain confidence. And I think one of the big personal growth parts about being a pilot that makes it so special is we learn some things about ourselves, don't we? We face these fears. We're scared to death. And then we go, if we've done our homework properly, and we're like, I'll be darned if I didn't handle this. I'm a bigger man than I thought. <laughs> That's I think is a big part of the reward. Yeah, I I think the usually for me, even though uh, there's there's sometimes a longer gap between my flights than I like, um, it's uh, I think my only doubts are usually if uh, if I'm having to deal with some like uh, strong crosswinds or something. And and uh, and I haven't had to you know uh, land in a strong crosswind in a while. And that's um, a that's a good reason. That's a factual reason, isn't it? Yeah. And then and then of course you're just like, well, you know, if 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 it's not right, you go around. And if you don't like it again, you go around. If you still don't like it, there's probably another airport with a runway oriented in a different direction in the Phoenix area that you could go and sit for a while. And, and that touches on something else, right? Of course, another option is that you go up with an instructor and get sharp on and get confident if you have those doubts, right? Yeah. There's There are a lot of people who say, well, I never fly when, you know, instrument pilots, I never fly if it's lower than 800 overcast, or I don't fly in crosswinds over, the, over seven knots. And then they'll tell you, I don't even bother to practice them because I have no intention of flying when the crosswinds over seven knots. Oh, I'm so glad that you have uh, that much information about how the weather is going to be at your destination. Exactly. <laughs> right? So that's the reason why, even if you want to set those limits, which is perfectly reasonable, you want to train to the limits always so that you have those skills if you need them. Because who among us has not gotten somewhere and was faced with, especially like where I live out here in the West, the next airport might be 100 miles away. So I better be able to land if it can safely be done. Mm -hmm. So that's just one other tip. Don't ever kid yourself that your limits should be as far as you train. You train, train to the absolute limit of the aircraft and yourself and the rules. And then you can set whatever limit you want for a practical limit, but you'll have the skills if you need them to handle the extreme situation. Yeah. I tell you, I've, uh, I've, uh, re-demonstrated what the, uh, maximum crosswind is in a 172 <laughs> during a, uh, during a BFR. Perfect time to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, what were the winds? 
oh my gosh, uh, mid twenties. That's a workout. And, and like, and, and like 90 degrees across the stinking runway, uh, over at Buckeye. It was, uh, it was uh, sketchy and we did about four five, six landings on the last one. Like the, the wind picked up the tail, not the tail, but picked up the wing to where I was on my nose wheel and a, and a main wheel. And I was, Whoa. you know, and I was like, Whoa, I'd pull it back down, you know, and get that, get that, uh, wing into the wind better. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a learning. I can share a crosswind, a simple crosswind tip with you if you're interested. Sure. Any tip's good. <laughs> this is the secret to doing crosswind landings and takeoffs for that matter, is to separate your thinking. You know, you know how hard it is trying to figure out, well, how much rudder should I put in and how much yoke, how much bank, so to speak, how much aileron should I put in, right? It's, it's, you're constantly trying to figure that out. So what you do is you separate your thinking about those two controls completely. With your feet, you're doing only one thing, which is pointing the nose in the direction it needs to go. Not necessarily flying in that direction, but lined up with the runway, right? That's all mm -hmm. you're doing with your feet is keeping the nose lined up with the runway. And the aileron moves you laterally left and right. Now, it, and it's actually that simple if you separate those things, you can completely rationalize the crosswind landing. You just keep that nose pointed down the runway. And if you start drifting to one side, you bring in aileron and it'll bring you back. But once you've separated those, your feet will sort of automatically keep the nose pointed parallel, you know, straight down the runway or parallel to it if you're off to one side. And then you can bank left and right, keeping the nose pointed down the runway. And you can work it in gusts and everything else right down to the runway. Now, obviously, if that puts you in a situation where the wing is low enough that you're worried about hitting it or that gusts are throwing you back and forth, that exceeds your capability and or the planes, right? But mm -hmm. it's a really simple way. Separate those thoughts, your, your feet, your rudder keeps the nose pointed down the runway and the aileron moves you left and right. And it completely rationalizes crosswind landings. All right. That's a good tip. I can, you, I can think of that in my head of how that works out. It's pretty simple once you get used to it and try it next time you go up. I think you'll be astonished at how effective it is. And the great thing about it is it handles gusts, right? Because otherwise mm -hmm. we get into this uh, slip situation and then we're like, whoa, I got, just got a gust. I'm blowing one way or the other. But this rationalizes that because you're just going to keep the nose going straight with your feet. And then you're just going to counter the gust with aileron. And, mm -hmm. and then you can stay pretty much where you want to stay relative to the middle of the runway. Yeah. Um, you said you, you, uh, you own your own plane. Are you, you have a, a 172 or a 182? We've got a 182. It's called the flying carpet. We've yes. had it for 21 <laughs> years. Wow. Is that a turbo? It is not. And I'll tell you, if we knew we were going to be living in Flagstaff, we would have bought a turbo. Yeah, I bet. It's, uh, it definitely, like, it's, we all know, uh, those of us who've flown 182s among the listeners and so on will know that it's a powerful airplane and you're, you get in there and take off and climbs at 1,500 feet a minute. But in the summertime in Flagstaff, field elevation is 7,000, we commonly see altitudes, uh, density altitudes over 10,000 feet 
in mm-hmm. a summer afternoon. And on a summer afternoon, Gene and I are both small people with, we'll, we, we can take off on a summer afternoon with partial fuel and virtually no bags and two of us. Any more than that, we're not going anywhere. That what saves us up here is that it's quite cold in the, at night. We have this huge temperature spread where I live, 32 degrees, I believe, 33 degrees is the actual average daily high and low spread. So if you take off at six o'clock in the morning in the summertime, the density altitude might only be might only be eighty five hundred or nine thousand feet. <laughs> so uh, it's manageable. But yeah, a turbo would be mighty nice to have up here. But we've learned for our mission, uh, we can uh, we we haven't had the urge to trade airplanes or anything. It's a good, reliable airplane and takes us where we want. And even coming out of Telluride in the summer, we were able to do that light. You know. Yeah. My, uh, I think I told you my, my, uh, first, first flight as a newly minted, uh, private pilot was, uh, taking my buddy back to Flagstaff to pick up his plane. Um, is, uh, he had popped his tail wheel on, on landing the week before when we dropped off some blood platelets for the United blood services. And my daughter was with me and, and, uh, so I dropped him off and he took off and then I started to take off after him and, plane just wasn't picking up the speed nor the RPM that I thought it should have. So aborted landing and tower was like, do you need anything? You need help? I was like, no, no, I'm fine. We just, I just need to sort something out. And and I was like, Oh shoot, I'm at 7,000 feet up here. <laughs> Let's uh, so from that day forward, uh, when I land at you know, Sedona or if I go to Flagstaff or anywhere up North, anywhere that's, that's four or 5,000 feet up or above. I, I just, I do a full power run up, lean it to my best power and then give it a little bit more gas uh, to where I'm not too lean, richen it up a little bit. Um, and that's how, that's my run up procedure. Um, You're doing it right. Do you know the, do you know the trick on, uh, on the takeoff roll? Hmm. So this is kind of interesting. Uh, first of all, you are right on with that leaning and it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. You you pick up a couple hundred RPM. It's huge, and it could be the difference between making it and not making it. So I'm really thrilled to hear you say that. Um, on the takeoff roll in these, especially in these non-turbocharged airplanes, the trick is at these high density altitudes. Once you break ground, lower the nose and accelerate in ground effect. Mm-hmm. Because one of the dangers that we all know, ground effect right is about one wingspan. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a, you're riding on a cushion there. But because your performance is so terrible in a normally aspirated airplane, non-turbocharged airplane at high density altitude, because it's so terrible, uh, it's not uncommon that people will, you know, you have an expectation from taking off at Deer Valley as to what, how much to pitch up and what you're going to see. If you do that at Flagstaff on a hot day or another high elevation airport, you'll actually, you'll fly okay, usually, but when you leave ground effect, you can stall it and drop in. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to meet those trees on the other end. Exactly, because you're not, you, you're not going uh, as you have, you're not accelerating and you don't have the excess power to get the climb. So by accelerating in ground effect, leveling off and accelerating in ground effect, and then climbing when you hit your climb speed, you avoid that happening. And when you do start to climb, you're at your normal climb speed 
and therefore getting reasonable performance, stable. Yeah. Speaking of that, are you, are you more of a, and is there, is there a right or a wrong, uh, is there a situation for this one way or the other, would you say, are you more of a VX or VY guy? Um, for density altitude? For any time that you, I, I guess one, I guess there might be a, a more reason to do one over the other in density altitude, but in gen, in general, personally, I'm a VY guy. Yeah, I am too. So in our airplane, it's 80. So that's okay. what I'm, that's what I climb at. And that's true at any altitude. The, mm -hmm. You know, you want to use the same indicated airspeed, no matter what the density altitude is when you're in terms of pattern work, you know, taking off and landing, you always use the same indicated airspeed, but your ground speed is much different, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because your true airspeed, um, you know, it's about 2% per thousand. So if you're, if you take off at 80, at sea level, and then you go to 10,000 feet and take off, you'll be going about 20% uh, faster. So you'll be doing about 100 over the ground when you're yeah. indicating 80. But you got less, less, less oxygen molecules, air molecules to you know, keep you afloat there. So Exactly. And that's why your landing distance is also longer. A lot of people don't, don't realize that your yeah. landing distance is also longer because you're going faster, but you fly by your regular indicated airspeed. But what I found up here, and uh, not everyone agrees on this, but I use, um, I do use short field flaps and more of a VX speed in high density altitude because I want to get off the ground and then I'll, uh, accelerate to VY and ground effect. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because you're going to pick up that speed faster once you're off the ground than you would be on the ground. Exactly. I don't want to be and dragging then, wheels he, there. What do you, uh, Brad, do you have a certain way that you do it uh, out there? And and, he, and Brad flies a, a, a menagerie of different planes because he's part of a club. So he could be in an archer. He could be in a... Uh, uh, a Mooney, they don't have that anymore or, or whatever, but yeah. So, and, and we don't really worry about density altitude out here in the flatlands uh, sure. terribly much. Cause even on a, on a 90 degree day, which for us is, is super hot. Um, it, the density altitudes are just never that high. Um, you know, we get, we'll have negative 4,000 feet density altitudes in the wintertime. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, they really climb then, don't they? Yeah, they. You you got to tether the airplane to the ground, otherwise they just float off. We got to we got a whole another set of problems that we have to deal with when it's that cold. But um, but you know, positive on the positive side, you know, we're eight hundred and sixty feet, and on a hot hot day, we might see a twenty eight hundred or a three thousand foot density altitude, and it it just doesn't make a tremendous difference. You know, the runways are, are long and wide because they're covered in ice in the wintertime. <laughs> and, uh, it, and I generally am flying hardware that, that can handle it. Now we have, we have 3,300 foot runways where I'm based. Um, but the crosswind runways are 2,600 feet, 2,700 feet. And I won't use those runways with the Saratoga. So that means I'm doing crosswind. I'll, I'll be doing you know harder crosswind takeoffs and landings. But there's that plane is is so easy to to maneuver that it's really not a problem. And and with 300 horsepower, it 
it takes off real, real fast. That's actually one of the issues up here. Um, if you've got a crosswind, let's say, and a high density altitude, and and you're you're using, you know, instead of using maybe 800 feet ground roll, maybe you're rolling 2,000 feet. So if you've got a crosswind and and you're trying to fly, the, you know drive this tricycle on the ground 2,000 feet with a crosswind and the wind, you know, and the, the tail and the wings, it, that is quite challenging. And so uh, it's something I try and avoid is big crosswinds at high density altitude because you go skittering along the ground and it's tough on the tires, it's tough on the pilot, and it can be dangerous if there's a big crosswind up here. And that's where that ability that you, you're talking about to get promptly off the ground really makes a big difference, doesn't it, it from, in those circumstances? Absolutely. And, and, you know, we do have the ground handling problems in the wintertime when, when the runways are coated in, in ice. Um, we're just, we're so used to driving on it that I've found it's not that difficult to, to manage crosswinds on ice. You know, you, you steer the plane into it and it, it handles okay. Um, but that's just my own personal experience. Well, I agree with you. If you're if you've got good command of the plane and it's not too gusty, you actually have more control because you have aerodynamic control that you don't have in your car. You know, so in some circumstances, it can be it can be not too bad. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this. I remember in Wisconsin at, at least once uh, getting to the end of the runway and being unable to turn around and have, because it was too icy, and then shutting the engine down and lowering the tail in a 172 and turning the plane around and then starting the engine again and taking off because it was too slippery, but the winds were calm and, you know, you, you got good aerodynamic control. It was a wide, wide enough runway. Uh, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I was going to, uh, unless, um, Unless you had something else, Greg, I was just going to ask Brad what what uh, what kind of flying he's been doing lately. Uh, really none. I've uh, I've actually got a flight review coming up, and I've got to see if I'm going to be able to get any CFIs that are willing to sit in the right seat in a little tiny compartment. Mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in that order could be to challenging. get that done. Um, yeah. I'm not I'm not remotely certain. I've heard rumors that the FAA, as they have done with medicals. Uh, medicals are won't expire right now. Yeah, um, that they are considering doing a similar thing with some flight reviews, and I, I, that's all I've heard is that it's a rumor, and you know, we'll see what happens. I sure hope that's true. Another place where that's really hurting people is written tests expiring. I'll bet. Oh, yeah, yeah, because you can't you can't get a check ride. You yeah, it, it's gonna create a bunch of additional tension I think for people uh, and I and I hope that the FAA gives some relief uh, to that situation um, so yeah I've actually I've actually got to do some uh, night currency work and some instrument work just to just to maintain currency right now uh, mm -hmm. luckily um, most of the time, the weather is warm enough for us to do that. It's been, we've had this little cold snap, but we're going to be back up to 60 by the weekend. So that will, uh, if it's 60 and cloudy, that's just about perfect for me. That's good flying weather. So I'm hopeful. Except for the cloudy part. 
<laughs> no, that's that's cloudy as long as it's above freezing is great. Yeah. Do away with the ice. Greg, what's your uh, what's your opinion uh, opinion of basically how this uh, pandemic might affect the uh, GA market as far as like airplane sales? You know, it's it's confusing as can be, isn't it? Every part of this life right now. Um, first of all, I, I have been doing some flying, which I can do here. You know, varying by state, whether you can do that sort of thing. I can go to the airport that's five minutes away. I've talked to the airport director. Tower is open, and so on. So I I literally went flying this morning, and um, it, it was therapeutic. And I was surprised that a fair number of people were flying. And there is some instruction going on, for example. But what I think is going to happen, first of all, we all you've seen what's happened to fuel prices. Yeah. It's unbelievable how inexpensive fuel is. So I just wish I, I could go somewhere and, and uh, buy some cheap fuel. I think what will happen is this. First, the market has been very tight for used airplanes. It's almost impossible to buy a decent one. And I think that those people who have cash right now, this is a great time to go looking for an airplane because they're, they're not that easy to sell. And people who are heavily invested in the stock market, for example, their mm -hmm. resources are down. If they're not working or they're worried about work, their resources are down. So I actually think it may be an opportunity to buy an airplane I'm not sure what the longer term effect with GA will be. The airlines, you know, at least two regionals have gone out of business, uh, Compass and uh, Transstates. Mm. And a lot of flight schools may suffer. Yeah. But the pilot shortage ain't going away. Right. We're still going to have that after this is all done. That's right. And my perception, and you know, I'm no scientist and no medical person, but my wife is she is actually, and we've talked about this a lot. And based on everything I've heard, I think we'll see things improve when this testing gets going. If you can determine, if the flight instructor can determine that their student doesn't is not infected through testing, I think that sort of activity will resume fairly soon. Obviously, when there's treatments, it'll resume even more. And then when there's uh, a vaccine, it'll be back to normal. But the airlines, this is kind of interesting. I, when I went flying this morning, I stopped at the airport office, and we have commercial flights. Uh, American and United come in here to uh, mm -hmm. Flagstaff. And I talked to the airport director, and I said, well, what are you hearing from the airlines? He said they figure they'll be back to about 80% of their passenger load by the end of the year. Now, that's not tomorrow, <laughs> but it's also not eternity. I yeah. think that when this is over, everything will go back to normal. The question is how quickly. And I've been through a number of these things, you know, the 9-11 thing, the air traffic controllers strike, and then a couple industry downturns. From a flying standpoint and a cost standpoint and a professional career standpoint, the economic downturns were far more painful than 9-11 and uh, like the first Gulf War, a lot of uh, aviation got slowed down for a while. Mm -hmm. In this case, we had basically a good economy. If we can get back to it fairly soon, I think that GA will just keep roaring along. To be honest with you, my biggest concern about GA isn't the coronavirus. It's the, the size of the fleet diminishing so rapidly. 
They're, oh. You know, they're just not making very many light airplanes. And every time, I mean, how many airplanes have been destroyed in the last four months in uh, oh, tornadoes? Tornadoes. I mean, that one that just happened in uh, Alabama. Is that right? Was it Alabama? Shreveport, yeah. Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah, I saw a picture of that airport and it looked like that. I thought it was just a repost of the airport from Nashville. Yeah, from some months ago. And I was like, holy cow, there's another one that's just with millions of dollars worth of airplane just strung out all over the place. Well, and then when flight training was really hopping, they were buying up every, you know, simple, any, every basic single engine airplane. 172 prices went through the roof. I heard people paying like 70 some thousand for a 70s 172. I mean, that that's wild. And 182s. Yeah. And the Cherokees. Uh, I do think that whatever effect this has in the shorter term, people who are thinking of buying airplanes would be wiser to try and plan on doing it in the fairly near future, the next few months while things are a little slower. Because once... Once the pilot shortage really shows itself again, when the economy picks up, there are going to be even fewer of those airplanes around to buy and the flight schools are going to be trying to get mm -hmm. them. So yeah. I actually think there's some opportunity ahead. Also, I think fuel prices will stay lower for a while. Yeah, that'd be nice. It'd be, be cool if you could uh, pre-purchase, you know, if you had the money, say pre-purchase a, a few hundred gallons <laughs> at today at, at, at these cheaper prices. Because we know they're going to just go back up eventually, but that know. would be great. You don't got you don't got MoGas up there available, do you? No, um, in my one eighty two, I can't use it because I have the U engine, the O four seventy U. But uh, there was one gas station that had it, a Maverick station, and I don't know if they still do, but there's none on the field. So the guys yeah. who were using it had to. I say guys, the, the men and women who were using it. They had to put tanks on their pickup trucks, and you know it's quite a big investment to do that kind of yeah. stuff. Big commitment. There's just not much of it around in this area because all of our fuel has ethanol in it all the time, so which is no good for the seals. Well, yeah, that's a uh, yeah. I think it. I think it's definitely going to going to be a buyer's market if you if you're if you're in the market and you actually haven't been affected uh, financially in one way or the other. You you might have a chance to take advantage of something something on the good side here. You know? I think so. And some of the people who own airplanes are going to be forced to sell them right now. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. All of a sudden, you know, you're out of work, you had this great job and whatever happened, you know, now all of a sudden you don't have your income. And, and honestly, 80% of the U S are, are paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Oh, so I feel, you know, you might make a great income, but you also spend it at the rate coming in. That's, that's, it's not the smartest move ever, you know. So and all these folks who are in training for their pilots' licenses, and it's come to a halt. And those who are on pro in pro pilot programs and maybe borrowed money to oh. get into them. And I, I just my heart yeah. goes out to everyone. I I do think it'll all work out fine. Having been through some of these things before, I, I'm a person who believes that this will all work out fine. I I don't think this is doomsday, but months go by very slowly when you're. Hurting, right yeah there's uh, there'll be there'll be some uh there'll be some good that turns out of it in one way or another so it's it's nice to see uh clean skies all over the place it's incredible how quickly you know the air cleans up when you don't have millions of cars on the road all the time yes so.
that's that's one of the positives. Someone mentioned that it's like, oh, Mother Nature's, you know, uh, resting now or you know, cleaning up. And and I thought, you know, it's taken us how many hundreds of years to with all of our carbon output to do this much damage. How much do you think it's going to change overnight? And I was surprised at how how clean it is, actually is. You know, so because uh, yeah. I've there's a couple of videos that I've watched from a, a guy in the, in the L.A. area that owns his own helicopter and he's did some flights around the LA area and around the coast and the visibility is, you know, unheard of. You just, you can't see what he's seeing like normally you just don't. Well, so, well, we, uh, we are, uh, running a little bit long here. It's been about an hour and a half and, uh, I just like to, uh, give anyone else out there an opportunity to uh, jump in if there was something that you wanted to bring up that we hadn't, hadn't talked about yet. Um, have at it. I, I've got a brief closing story. If, if you all are ready for closing. Absolutely. I think we're at that point. Well, I, I think it's a good time for us to remember the joy that we get out of flying. And I think that uh, this is a time of reflection in that we've all had these great adventures and now we're kind of not having them, most of us, and they will come back. But I think it's a, you know, a great example of times when you appreciate, this gives us an appreciation that we might or might not have fully had before. But I had a thing happen to me a few months ago that just captured the joy of flying uh, in a way that I hadn't thought about for a while. So I hadn't been flying at all for quite some time. I had projects going, we had bad weather and so on. So one morning I got up and I thought, you know, I, I'm gonna fly to Payson for breakfast. And Chris, you've been to Payson before, so you know what it's about. Probably my second favorite airport in the, in the, in the state. Right, it's a wonderful spot. And there's this restaurant called the Crosswinds Restaurant that's right on the field. And, and it is a truck stop diner with fabulous <laughs> food at really cheap prices. And it's just- Good pies. Right? Well, funny you should mention that. So Jean couldn't go. I think she was playing tennis or doing something else and nobody wanted to go. My neighbor couldn't go. So I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm going flying today no matter what. And this is a 35-minute flight. It's pretty. It's a lot. Pretty, it's a lot of fun for 35 minutes. But just to get in the airplane and you know spill some gas on myself and you know do the thing. So I I took off. I flew down there. It was a beautiful day. I landed and I went inside and I'm having breakfast. And my wife called, and I had forgotten to send her a text that I safely landed. So I thought that's why she called. But that wasn't why she called. She said, do they have any strawberry rhubarb pie today? <laughs> so it turns out, for those who have not been there, they have a, this place makes pies. They have a baker come in at night, and they have a display case right when you're going out the door with all kinds of fabulous pies. And they're just – you can't describe how great they are, right? So – Thanks to my wife's urging and, uh, you know, I picked up a strawberry rhubarb pie and I paid for it. I went out the door. I go down to the airplane and here comes a fellow taxiing in, in a uh, really nice looking Cherokee 180 that was painted in sort of metallic purple and white, which sounds garish, but it was really cool. 
He shuts down. He's in the plane alone. And so I went over and offered to, you know, help him push it into a parking spot. And I did that. And uh, I said, well, what brings you here today? I told him, you know, I'd come down from Flagstaff. He had come up from somewhere in the Phoenix area. I don't remember what airport. And I told him, you know, I, I had breakfast and my wife, you know, had me pick up a pie. Here it is. I'm holding it. And uh, what brings you here today? And he said, well, my wife is hosting a meeting at our house tonight. And she asked me if I would run out and pick up a couple of pies. <laughs> now, what do you think that his wife had in mind? It, it wasn't getting the airplane and go fly to an airport to get a pie, I bet. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you got to just read into it what you want. Yeah. It, it, but, he, but that's what I heard also when she asked. So that <laughs> well, it, there was just no doubt about what his wife had asked. And he had a sparkle in his eye. I don't know if he winked or not, but when he said, my wife told me I should run out and pick out a couple, pick up a couple pies. So here I am. So I just <laughs> thought that was all about what we get out of this, that uh, it just summed up the joy in a very simple way that all of us get when we, we go on these missions and, there's that extra devilish little bit of fun that we all have, no matter what the mission is. It's a good excuse. That's as good excuse as any to go flying right there. Well, Brad or uh, Conway, anything to add there? You know, you've actually covered covered all of my questions. Um, <laughs> you know, I I guess I got I got the one in about whether or not the the flying carpet was turbocharged and. Um, I wish, I wish for your sake that it was. I, I, I think if I ever found myself living in Flagstaff, I think a turbocharger would be a thing I would want in a hurry. Um, but, uh, but I'm sure you manage just fine. And like you said, you can work around at the evenings and, and whatnot. If, if I didn't think it was safe, that would be different. But for my missions with normally two of us, um, it it does great. The only time it's a problem is if we want to take another couple somewhere on a summer in the summertime. Then it can be. Then we got to go light on fuel. But sure, it's completely safe if it's managed properly, and we haven't missed anything as a result of it. So for the added cost and maintenance of the turbocharger and, and to change from a plane, I know to another one that I have to work out all the bugs on. I haven't had the inclination to do that. So I wouldn't I wouldn't discourage anybody at all. If you were flying a 172 out of here, some people do, but I would definitely like to see the 180 horse conversion would be very helpful here if you were going to fly out a flag. I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah, when I uh when I flew out of there uh um last month, you know, it was plenty cool and it wasn't no big deal, but yeah, the summertime in 160 horse I mean, luckily I was empty. There was no one else in the plane but me going home, and I had already used up, you know, uh, an amount of fuel getting there. So, wouldn't have been that big a deal. But all about the mission. It was perfectly safe for you to do that by yourself, or maybe with two people, and you obviously knew the variables. The big lesson there is: people coming from the flatland, people who've never flown in the high country, must, must, must do some homework, and ideally get a lesson or two. But study it and understand what the issues are and maybe make up a mountain flying checklist. Uh, Checkmate had one that Jim Pittman put together that was very good. Um, but don't come into the mountains without studying this first because your airplane is not the same airplane up here. 
Oh, that <clears throat> that reminded me. I wanted to ask you a question. Something that I heard during my training that always has stuck with me, and 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 basically this is just always the way I fly it. And because you fly into uh, Sedona quite a bit, um, let me ask your opinion if this is true or folklore or what. But basically, um, well, someone is very comfortable with the airport, no big deal. But I, I had a thing to where I'd only, I'd only go like if I could land on three and take off on two one. And uh, landing on three is preferred with up to a ten knot tailwind. Which have you heard that? Yep. Okay. I would agree I, completely. And the reason, of course, for listeners who aren't familiar, is that this is a runway that slopes uphill to the northeast. Oh, and and it's you know, what forty five hundred feet is is uh, field elevation. It's about mm-hmm. five. It's actually five. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yes, and it's it's on top of a mesa, so we lovingly call it the USS Sedona. But I also don't set down the airplane until I'm past the thousand foot marker. Because number one, there's plenty of runway still to get stopped in a 172 or a Cherokee. Um, and I and I don't have to deal with any updrafts or downdrafts of being at the end of the runway. And that's one of the challenges, right? If there's a yeah. if if you're landing into a, a headwind as you ideally want to do, um, with that huge drop off at the end, there may be an updraft or a downdraft. Go will be a downdraft if it's a headwind. Um, so if you're on the low side, you could you could have problems there if you're hit a downdraft at the end of the runway. Mm-hmm. I mean, the trick is to visualize. This is just a general mountain flying tip: is to visualize the uh, a stream, a brook with rocks in it. We've all seen this wherever we live, and the water goes flowing over those rocks, right? And it goes up mm-hmm. and up over the rocks and down on the other side. That's exactly what the air does in the mountains. And so if you know where the wind is coming from, you can visualize very clearly where the updrafts and downdrafts will be. And in a place like Sedona, where it's surrounded by that steep, high terrain, you definitely want to be aware of if there will be a downdraft. Um, But as, as you were to get back to your story, because it slopes uphill to the northeast, it turns out that Unless the wind is quite strong, the uh, the slope trumps wind. In other words, yeah. up to about 10 knots, or some people uh, instead use the rule of thumb, 10% of takeoff of rotation speed. That mm. would be a little slower, uh, except to tailwind up to that. Now, I've landed on 2-1, which is downhill, and it is really weird and uncomfortable. I've done I- it. And if there's plenty of wind, I will do it, but I don't like yeah. it. I just don't like that end because of that uh, that little lump of mountain that's in front of it. Then there's a gap, and then there's the runway. Yep. It's a little visually screwing me up. Um, I'm with you. And then you feel like you're low because the runway is yeah. sloping away from you. And then, of course, you also feel like you're high when you're landing on three. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that so I know that uh, it wasn't just you know someone who told me that down here. Um, and then, but then you go get up there and you occasionally, you know, there's four or five people somehow in the pattern and you're all having to land on two, one. So you could go out there and circle for a while and wait till the runway's clear and then land on three. Um, but usually the ones who land on two, one, unless wind is really howling, they don't know what they're doing. That's what I kind of feel, but 
worth waiting for your yeah. turn and, and tell everybody I'm landing at three and then yeah. figure it out, you know? That's right. That's right. Well, guys, if you don't mind, um, uh, I think we should go ahead and probably wrap it up. Well, thank you for the opportunity to join you all. This was fun. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. I, it's, it's really great to, to sort of virtually meet you. <laughs> well, thank you. If I could uh, put in a very small pitch, my flying carpet book is filled with the sorts of stories that we've talked about today. And I think a lot of people will find them interesting. And I'm also proud of the fact that that book is designed to be read by non-pilots as well as pilots. So uh, I, I'm really thrilled that I've had a lot of cases where people have said to me, uh, my friend didn't want to fly with me or my wife didn't want to fly with me, but they read the book and got a better understanding of what was going on. And then they were game to give it a try. That is like a really great compliment. So if you're looking for some reading about our kind of flying, you might take a look at that book, Flying Carpet, and then look forward to the one that'll be coming soon with more of those stories. And I and I completely second that recommendation. It's it's one of my favorite uh, general aviation books. It's it's super accessible and it, it does a great job of explaining in in easy to understand terms the the value that you can get from flying. Uh, it's it's great. So. Thank so you, Brad. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Excellent. Well, hang out with us just a little bit longer, and uh, Mr. Conway is going to uh, get us out of here. Yeah. So we already started out uh, on where you can find um, some of us online, and we'll have uh, links and everything to the, the books, the um, Facebook group, and all that in the show notes as well. So if anybody wants to find that, all the links will be in there. So with that, we'll just uh, go ahead and wrap up real quick, uh, let everybody know where they can find all of us uh, online. So go ahead and start with uh, uh, Greg. If you have any other links or anything you'd like to drop or pitch at this point, <laughs> go for it. My, uh, my website, my blog is Greg Brown flying carpet. Um, dot com. My Instagram is Instagram slash Greg Brown flying carpet. My Facebook, my public Facebook page, my aviation page, which I would love to have you come and join is uh, Greg Brown flying carpet. So I've tried to make it easy. There seems to be a theme. There seems to be a theme because the problem, <laughs> right, right? My name is so common. And then there's the famous folk singer and so on. Um, but people know the, if they don't know my column, then they know the flying carpet or they know my airplane. So that's why. So um, check them out. There's information about my books. I also do uh, a lot of aerial photography and offer prints. Uh, a lot of it is in the Southwest. That you can find out about at either at the uh, either my website or my Facebook page. Um, that's probably all the contact information that, that I can handle at my age. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, Chris, how about you? Sure. You can um, shoot me an email at chris at in the pattern podcast.com. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at cholubaz, that's C-H-O-L-U-B-A-Z. Uh, you can hit us up on the uh, Facebook at the uh, In the Pattern Podcast uh, Facebook. And um, yeah, that's about it. All right. And Brad, how about you? 
Uh, you can reach me via email at brad at inthepatternpodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at Brad Kane and on Facebook and other crazy places. Uh, and Kane is spelled Kilo Oscar Echo Hotel November, just like it sounds. All right, for me, you can find me at john at inthepatternpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, pretty much anywhere else at Pilot Conway. Um, for the entire podcast, you can reach us all at podcast at inthepatternpodcast.com. We're on Twitter's In the Pattern, or go ahead and give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash inthepatternpodcast. Uh, show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found on our website, inthepatternpodcast.com. Uh, go ahead and send us any suggestions, comments, critiques. We'd love to get all the feedback from our listeners. Uh, and if you can, give us a little rating in the uh, um, podcast, uh, Apple Podcast Store. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and uh, thank Greg for coming on again for this episode. This has been a fantastic conversation. And that's going to wrap up episode 76 of the In the Pattern podcast. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And remember, make left traffic. You're cleared for the option.